Hello, and welcome to Danley and Friends. I'm your host, Ryan Danley. On this podcast, I seek to spread joy by connecting you with my friends and other people who are doing positive things in their community and in the world at large. I also seek to spread connection through encouraging open dialogue, having difficult conversations, and exploring new ideas and concepts. Continuing on from last week's conversation with my boys, Corey and TJ, let's get it. Enjoy. So Marks, I'm, I'm, I'm going to march this through kind of to, to, to today. Um, I wanted to establish a couple of things. First, that Marx is morally equivalent to, to Nazism. I think that's very important. It's got the death toll. It's got the airing of grievances. It's got the bad guys. It's got the good guys. It's got the justification of evil acts against um, peaceful people who, who, who you know, voluntary, God forbid they, they are engaged in voluntary exchange. The, it it's becomes a justification for uh, destroying nuclear family and to burn down people's churches. And, and then while put into practice, it's done exactly that. It's got a bloody history, millions dead, stacked bodies, Russia, China, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Cuba, and everywhere. Um, and, and I think people make the mistake of saying, well, it just wasn't carried out right or it's corruption. It's like, no, these ideas are evil, extremely evil. Um, and at a certain point, I, I, so I don't know why there's, there's, there's a, so anti-Semites tend to be like Nazi sympathizers. So like, what do they do? They tend to like, well, was it really 6 million? Was it really, were they really gassing them? We're like, so they're, they're Holocaust deniers. And I think you have that same mentality when it comes to uh, victims of Marxism, is that there's a denial of what took place. And we've seen that. We've seen that in me. Unfortunately, people are sympathetic. So just like anti-Semites are sympathetic to the Nazi cause. And the, the only distinction between Nazis and Marxists are the fact that the Nazis learned that um, you shouldn't kill the competent. Because when you kill the farmer and the people that own the factories, um, they don't, nobody produces food or nobody produces anything. And the, and then the co- the country just devolves into fucking a, a poor shithole. So the Nazis said, well, what if we just didn't kill them? What if instead of we changed ownership over the means of production to control over the means of production? That's the only distinction. And so they left people in charge of the factories. They left people in charge of, of the farms and whatnot. But then they said, we have strict control over how the profits are spent. We're going to take this money for this. You are going to act accordingly to this and such and such. And the, and the, the Chinese, the communist Chinese do the exact that's same the, playbook. Yep. It's the exact same thing. I was just about to thing. say, that's where the Chinese got it yep. right. So, that's where the Chinese got it right. Yeah, eventually, because the Chinese didn't have it right. And they, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution to Mao to taking sure. people's land, they, they had the same thing. 40 million dead. For sure. Um, but in 1970, yeah. they realized, you know what, we could benefit from from capitalism. They took advantage of Henry Kissinger's dumbass coming out there and and granting them <laughs> access to the world. And and now we have to fucking wear masks because of it. Um, so back uh, back to Marx and, and understanding just how evil the son of a bitch is. So imagine what does this look like in practice when this is carried out. So this is his measures for how a society, when the revolution takes place. This is post-revolution. This is what we're gonna, then going to do. Because the, the basic idea is 
you inspire, you awaken people to their chains, um, that you collectivize the bourgeois or the, the proletariat, say you're all oppressed and you need to overthrow the, the, the bourgeois violently if needed. And then you create a government, a strong central government that you impose over the, the bourgeoisie and get rid of all that thinking in the systems and, and, and change things. Um, and then when you get control of government, here are your 10 measures uh, for, for what you do with that government. Number one. So let me know how many of you guys of these you agree with. I'm going to guess one out of 10. Um, number one, abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Basically, abolition of property. You don't, you don't get to own shit. Uh, two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. The idea is that you create these bigger and bigger barriers so that nobody gets to like live on different levels of prosperity. It makes, it's, it's kind of a trap to say everybody can kind of be down here because the better you do, the harder it gets um, to realize the fruits of your own labor, which is funny because we have that in, in the United States today. Um, three, abolition of all right of inheritance. So anybody who's saying I'm working for my kid or trying to give them a better, better life, no, we're going to take all of that. You can't do that at all. Um, number four, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. So me, leaving New Mexico on my way out, take all of my stuff, everything I own, all my money, everything I work for, gone. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Well, I think we see how uh, that's going in the United States, the Federal Reserve. Uh, number six, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Do we think that that would go well? Centralist, centralization of uh, communication. We're getting to that point now, Facebook being the arbiter of, of truth. Uh, number seven, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultiva cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with the common plants. Basically, farmland brought in, you know, the state. Um, Number eight, equal liability of all to labor, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. I think we have a word for that. It's called slavery. So basically, the idea under Marxism is that if somebody pays you to work, then you're oppressed. But if the state forces you to work, then it's that's a measure. That's not slavery. So I'm pretty sure that's slavery. I'm pretty sure if you don't get paid or you're not uh, voluntarily doing it, then it's called slavery. So number eight is slavery. And number nine is combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, the gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equable distribution of the population over the country. So that just being the role of the centralized state to just kind of merge it into small one monogamous, what, whatever the fuck, and transform the, the landscape instead of having town centers and people living out here. And then number 10, Free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factories, factory labor in its present form, and combination of education with industrial production, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, uh, we need to educate all the children, do through through the state. You know, you, you you can you can give them the proper values. You know, you can understand why that's that's important. So, of those ten, how many would you? How many are how many are you guys in favor of? You know, I'm, I'm in favor of zero. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't really hear anything that struck my fancy, dude. Uh, yeah, I think I would say zero. I think a lot of people would say the last one yeah. about schools. Yeah, but if it if it meant that, but we see how if it meant abolishment going, of so. do you think that included homeschooling and private school? 
Because I'm sure that's not what it meant. I'm, I'm pretty. No, I'm pretty no. sure it meant no, you, you no. will go through a government, you know, state-run school. Um, but when I hear that that those count of measures, I see the death count. I can see why the tyranny exists. I can see why when those ideas are brought forth, why so many people died and were sent to the gulags and were sent to to the, to the camps to work. It's a measure. It's imposed labor. It's not that people got Marx wrong. It's not that Marx was a good guy that was, you know, saying stuff that was like, well, just it was it was a utopian image, whatever the fuck. The idea was that you enforce that you, that government exists, and then somehow it realizes its own redundancy, and the people in power just say, "Fuck it, we're not in power anymore," and then we just live in this magical utopia where everybody works and everybody prospers, and nobody's in charge, nobody has power. And so North Korea has been trying to figure out how to how to end that for 70 years. Just can't seem to get there. Um, Cuba, same thing. You know, can't seem to get there because um, there is no utopia at the at, at the other end. The people keep power. The people don't work when they're not motivated. It does become slavery. And so anybody who's carried this out or have 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 tried to carry it out, um, send their their society into a buzzsaw. Uh, and that's. Have either one of you seen what's happening in South Africa? Yeah. yeah. Or or Cuba for it's that matter. I saw I saw like the embargoes coming back into play in Cuba, but haven't like I haven't been watching the news to be honest with you, man. I've been just kind of living my fucking life because that's it's great. Way happier. That's fantastic. You know? Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're much smarter <laughs> than I am. <laughs> so it's been going down. Cuba's trying to basically get out of communist revolution. And so you have people in the streets yelling. Uh, Libertas and stuff like that, which is funny because the media is saying that the, what they're wanting is more vaccines. <laughs> so Libertas is is translated to meaning we want Fauci, we want vaccines, um, not freedom from from communism. And then South Africa uh, is just evolving into chaos. Uh, people are just looting and burning, like massive. Like it is massive amounts of just disorder and chaos. Where it's like, okay, that's just a society thoroughly crumbling down into into nothing i it's it's at a scale that i think is like way more there's no coming back from than we saw in the united states oh yeah oh yeah whatever a couple of years ago i mean i think it is like legit like the police still had united control states in the united multiplied. states they just didn't choose to use that's it that's right this yep. is that nobody Correct. has any control this is completely out of control 70 percent of the cops are saying fuck it and like going in the opposite direction like it is it is nightmare conditions over there. It's like if Chaz, the the Seattle shit show, um, <laughs> it's if the whole country became Chaz, is what's going on in South Africa right now. Hmm. Or, or Chomp, whatever the hell it is. Yeah, whatever they call it. But that's, so the understanding of that's Marxism, and you go forward, and the only place that this was successful um, was in Russia. So with the Bolshe Bolshevik Revolution, um, and Lenin and Lenin was, uh, so, you know, I described Marxism, um, Leninism, Leninism is another word. It's not, doesn't quite mean Marxism. Um, Leninism just means applying a, uh, a political block to, to a communist, basically the establishment of a, of a communist party. It's the understanding that the, that the proletariat are too stupid uh, to shepherd themselves through a Marxist revolution. So you need a series, you need a collection of elites uh, that would help shepherd them to power. Um, really, it just becomes a justification for um, 
people who think of themselves as gods to say, I'll usher it in. I'll be the guy. That's Lenin to say, I hate the bourgeoisie and I want to see their, their overthrow. And then I will shepherd the proletariat, but then I get the power I'm in charge. Um, and that's where it was successful. So understanding that there was a successful a bourgeois political block that was created of elites and that oversaw, oversaw the overthrow of the, of the existing bourgeoisie. And so that's the only place, obviously, after that, they take everybody's land, they burn down churches, they put, you know, the, they get rid of the kulaks, um, you know, the creation of the, you know, secret police and uh, basically going through the measures uh, that Marx listed. Um, and yeah, it resulted in tens of millions of people dying. Um, yeah, it was absolutely dehumanizing and miserable, um, getting rid of people that were farming. Therefore you have a bunch of, uh, communities that were starving. They couldn't give a shit. They felt like people needed to go through those. They needed to go through that horror in order to come out the other end, a different human being molded clay in their image. Um, they would taunt, they would taunt people. To say uh, they would set up signs saying, "Hey, remember, don't eat your own children, because people are starving, and some people were either stealing other people's kids and eating them, or eating their own kids." Imagine getting to that point where you're fucking having your kid stolen and someone's eating your fucking kid. That's what this—that's where this gets you, and you have tens of millions of people dying at a scale worse than what the Nazis did. And when it came to, well, you know. What, it, it happens in Ukraine. It happens in the different parts that become the Soviet Union. Um, when it comes times to maybe report on it, the American media is nowhere to be found. So they go in like a Walter Duranty who works for the New York Times um, and is in Ukraine. And he gets the treatment where they're like, he's, he's sympathetic to the cause. Um, and he doesn't come out and say, yeah, they're all starving to death. He knew it. He admitted later on that he knew it. But he's a force that could have stopped it. He could have came to the United States and say, hey, listen, they are starving their people. This is just as bad as the Nazis. We need to report on this. They didn't. They covered it up. And he won a, uh, uh, a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize Award um, awarded by, uh, I think, Columbia, uh, Cambridge. No, Columbia University. And uh, New York Times never apologized later on. Oh, sorry about the whole allowing genocide to take place. Um, it just... That was the media in the United States. They were sympathetic to the communist cause because that's very much their ideology, this idea of equality versus liberty. Those, those are countering forces. You have equal, if you mean equality of outcome, equal outcome and liberty aren't, are antithetical. They are completely different from each, from each other because liberty will always breed inequality. People are better than others. Um, people pursuing their own stuff. Some people are lazy. Some people are smart. Some people are whatever. You're always going to have equal outcome. But if you enforce equal outcomes you you must in order to get equal outcomes you have to enforce it there has to be centralization involved to get equal outcomes therefore a society that pursues equality will not get liberty that's the whole i i, I don't know if it was milton freeman or somebody else the closest you can get to both is through pure liberty the closest you can get to a society of equal equality and equal outcomes is one that pursues liberty but you'll never have both and you can never do it from the standpoint of equality uh, but a lot of uh, you know, people in media, I think, were sympathetic to this utopian, Hegelian, Marxist cause and decided that they weren't going to report news that was inconvenient to their ideology. And there's a series of, of, of that taking place. I mean, think about how much it, our image would be reshaped if that was the case. Um, so, but then 
the this gets into have you heard, you've heard the concept like cultural marxism yeah i feel like people butcher that people don't on, on either side of the aisle don't know what the hell that means necessarily yeah so give me give me a uh, definition of it so after the bolshevik revolution uh, the idea was that maybe during world war uh, 1 that proletariat revolutions would happen all over the place it wouldn't just be Russia. It would be the West. It would be Germany. The, the ideology is really taking off in Germany and different parts of Europe. And so there was, it never, it never manifested. And so you had a lot of intellectuals, Marxist intellectuals who were wondering, you know, why, why is this not manifesting anywhere else? And uh, so that's, you know, that kind of what, that's what the Frankfurt school is. The Frankfurt school in, in Germany uh, was a series of Marxists who were fascinated with the concept of why isn't, uh, Marxism taking off anywhere else other than Russia. Um, they come after, I think, a really important figure, uh, Antonio Gramsci. Have you ever heard of Antonio Gramsci? I haven't, man. Very, very no. important figure, Antonio Gramsci. So when people talk about cultural Marxism, they're talking about Antonio Gramsci. And so Antonio Gramsci is a, an Italian Marxist um, he's jailed by Mussolini. Uh, he was too radical, and uh, they felt that he they needed to let his brain rest and uh, not you know speak or anything like that. So he's in a he's in an Italian uh, fascist prison, and then he um, is also obsessed with the ideas of um, why isn't Marxism taking off anywhere else. And so he writes the prison, his prison notebooks, and then the prison notebooks become very influential on the Frankfurt School and on uh, Mao Zedong. Um, and so oddly enough, his works were translated in English at Notre Dame by a group led by Pete Buttigieg's dad. <laughs> so the first time, 1970, uh, Joseph Buttigieg at Notre Dame, is, is, he led the... Uh, the team that that translated his works into English. So I, mean, I, I always wondered where just random fucking people come from. And it's yeah. like those connections just make things hilarious. Like, oh, okay, that's what we know about the random Mayor Pete of fucking <laughs> Fort Wayne. And I don't know where the fuck he came from. Um, but anyway, so he's quoted as saying, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. Um, <clears throat> he, um, he felt that the bourgeoisie had created a dominant culture to keep the people trapped in their way of thinking and, and kind of upholding capitalism. So the concept is called cultural hegemony. Um, it's this idea that in the West, there's not just economic classes, but there's this culture that creates a false consciousness. So whether you're, if, if you're the, if you're the poor uh, and you're going to work and you have like your house and you listen to music and you're engaging in the culture, the culture is distracting you from seeing how oppressed you are. It's distract, distracting you from seeing your own chains. So the basic idea is there has to be an effort to awaken the culture, to awaken the underclasses to their own oppression, to say, listen, um, you work for somebody, they're taking from you, you know, all the Marxist views, um, you know, they're oppressing you and you're not mad about it. Why aren't you mad about it? You should be mad about it. And so the idea is how do you awaken um, the underclasses to their own oppression? 
how do you shake them and say, hey, you need to, uh, you need to, you need to see their, you need to see your chains and break away from your false consciousness. Um, and in order to, to do that, um, and, and people immediately apply cultural Marxism to things like race and sex and stuff like that. And that's the, that's the mistake because it, it's, it's not, he never really talked about race and sex. He didn't apply it. It wasn't applied at that point yet. This is just to get in the, this is the basic idea that, that Marxism isn't just, so Marxism is, is Heigl applied to economic, to purely economics, purely class. He takes that broader and says, no, 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 it's foundational. It's culture and it's education. So if you ever heard the concept that politics runs downstream from culture, yeah, it, it's also fair to say that culture runs downstream from education. And that was his obsession was, well, then we need to create um, enlightened proletariat. We need to create an, an, a what, what he coined working class intellectuals. Um, so we need to inject ourselves into the educational system. Um, and he felt that the pillars of culture must be taken on religion, family, education, media law. Um, and he didn't think that taken on meant destroyed. He thought just interjected. So for example, uh, when the Soviets wanted to get rid of religion, they just burned the church down and killed all the members of the church. <laughs> um, his idea was, no, 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 just inject the ideology into the church and corrupt it. And so, like, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the term, the long march through the institutions. Yeah. So I that he didn't you, point, actually. Yeah, I, I, I didn't write down the guy's name that came up with it. But what he was talking about was what Gramsci was describing. So Gramsci is the, the concept, but he just didn't coin that phrase. So it's this idea that you don't burn it down. You just in, inject your ideology into it because the church is a, has a great place to broadcast to people. So what if you corrupt that message into spreading your own ideology? Um, and so, yeah, he felt, like I said, the working class needed its own, its, no, its own culture and its own intellectuals. This idea was highly influential on Paulo Freire uh, from Brazil. Um, he wrote uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That's highly influential. That's in the 1960s. It's high, highly influential, uh, you know, for education in South America, but also in, in the United States. And then this idea spread to Michael Apple and Henry Drew in the United States. So this really reshapes this view of education from uh, the Enlightenment view that we're just trying to create people that are, you know, enlightened liberals and um, understand science and life skills and and all these things to this idea that education needs to be a way of awakening uh, uh, a proletariat underclass to seeing their own chains, to identifying oppression everywhere, seeing it all the time, and then um, amplifying it and, 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 and pointing it out. And so he is very influential on the Frankfurt School. Uh, the Frankfurt School began for very similar reasons. It was a, uh, it's like the Frankfurt School of uh, Social Research or something like that. Essentially, it was a Marxist think tank at Frankfurt University. And um, their obsession was how do you get Marxism to spread in the West? And they took those concepts, obviously influential by Gramsci, um, critical consciousness, cultural hege hegemony. Um, and they also developed the idea of critical theory. You heard of critical, critical theory? Uh, it's all over the place now. Critical race theory. Yeah. Uh, so before... Before critical race theory, it was just critical theory. Um, so that was coined by Max Horkheimer. Max Horkheimer, um, Max Horkheimer is like the president of the institute. It was like the leader of the institute. Uh, Max Horkheimer writes a paper in 1937 
Uh, it's called In Traditional and Critical Theory by Max Horkheimer. Um, essentially, that that society functions based on, it's very much a Hegelian idea that there's traditional theories. So that's thesis. And then it has to be met with critical theory. That's antithesis, negative thinking. Um, and so you've just all critical theory is it's not telling you how to run society. It's all obsessed with what's wrong with society. Here's what's wrong with this. Here's what's wrong with this. Now, when I say what's wrong with society, keep in mind, it's from a Marxist lens. So it's wrong. It's what's wrong with society on the basis of preventing a Marxist utopian revolution and equality. If you think that's the goal of society, then you lob criticisms on the basis of it not being an ideal democracy or of it being not equal enough. Um, and so his, his, his paper in traditional and critical theory by Max Horkheimer uh, essentially states that for something to be a critical theory, it must meet all three criteria. It must be explanatory. Uh, it doesn't explain how things work, but what is wrong with society, specific, specifically liberalism and Western civilization. I must say that that's what they recognize as being the problem was the liberal society. That's what, that's what the Frankfurt School and Gramsci were about, is how to overthrow liberal society. Liberation means liberation from Western civilization and liberal society. Um, two, it must be practical, must be able to be put into practical application by dedicated social activists. And three, it must be normative, meaning that it carries a, a moral agenda. It must provide both clear norms for criticism and achievable practical goals for social transformation. Uh, essentially reconsider the facts of society in their moral terms, in Marxist moral terms, in equitable moral terms. That's why we hear equity, 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 equity. What is equity? Equal outcomes. What is equal outcomes? Communism, Marxist utopianism. I don't, I don't want equal outcomes. So why would I judge things through the lens of equal outcomes? Um, for a theory to be critical theory, it has to apply its moral vision to society in order to be fundamentally transformed at the social level. Um, that that was the that that is the that is the goal of critical theory to trans to fundamentally transform uh, to transform society. Uh, and so you have Adorno, who's another member of the uh, of the Frankfurt School. He's kind of obsessed with like culture and music, so he felt like music. Uh, art were these things that distracted the lower classes from, again, seeing the, the chains of their own oppression. And so you had to somehow subvert culture. You had to subvert music. You had to subvert uh, things to waken class consciousness, to, to, to point out all the negatives, all the things that are wrong with your society so that you get mad. So you go, fuck, what the fuck? You know? And so this idea of saying, you know, we're going to constantly highlight stuff. We're not going to solve it. We don't know how to solve it. All we know is that it's, it's what's wrong with a liberal society. So if we constantly bring it up, we're constantly cynical and saying, look at this oppression, look at this thing, look at this thing. And we train people who go through this to see things the same way, then they'll eventually dissolve society for you. That's the basic idea is if you make people, and, and, I, and I think it's, it's, it's important to point out, anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. Anybody can see what's wrong with society and they can see what's right with society. You know, like what the very first question I think I posed you when our first podcast was, is the United States racist? That's a big fundamental question. You can find ways that it is. You can find ways that it is not. Um, but what is your lens 
you know, directed at. If you're constantly looking for everything as racist, then you're going to find racism. That's what confirmation bias is. You're going to find areas that it's racist. If you're going to say, you know what, it's the best society that ex that's ever existed and I can use it to my advantage to build myself up. And if, if you go through with that attitude, then you can do quite well. So it's, it's basically the idea is you come through critical theory and you just become ingrateful. You become ungrateful for, for the society. And then you just highlight what's wrong with no solutions. The solution isn't, so let's fix it. The solution is let's burn it down because that's, that's, the, that's truly what's, what critical theory is. It's not explaining how things work. It's not interested in how things work. It's not trying to say, so let's fix it. It's purely just to make you pissed off and make you go, what the fuck? And then you tear down society. And I, I, I think a perfect example of somebody who's taken that to the furthest extent is somebody like Meghan Merkel. Like that is somebody who's the most privileged, rich person <laughs> in existence. And even she can see the oppression in, in, in everything. She's a miserable, she's a miserable person. It's not, it's not her fault. She's encouraged to only see the miserable and to ignore or suppress what doesn't match the confirmation bias um, through a, a sort of kind of critical theory lens. Um, so that's, that's an important foundation. Yeah, man. Uh, interesting point about, you know, perspective and lenses is, you know, after I got a spinal cord injury and, you know, couldn't walk, um, I started to see my inability everywhere for a brief period of time, even to the point that I would look at my cat and be like, man, my cat can walk around and I can't. Even looking at squirrels, like, oh, they can fly through the trees and jump around and I can't. Like, I was fucking miserable, dude. And so... I had to really reshape that and it was hard, you know? Um, and then another thing is no one fucking likes the guy at work that always brings the problem to the meeting, but never has a solution. Right. So I, I can definitely see um, where that can be problematic. Yeah. And it's, it's not saying, so here's the thing with critical theory. They are very good at finding things that are, that are truthful. They, they critical theory encourages truthful, um, criticisms. Oftentimes they are vague or lack understanding of why that problem came about. But the biggest problem is the fact that there's no solution. There's no interest in solutions because the lens of critical theories is it's already decided. The problem isn't is the problem is capitalism and the problem is Western liberalism and Western liberalism. And so the goal isn't to make it better. It's not to say, look at this problem. Therefore, let's solve it. That's the civil rights lens. So the civil rights lens is saying, we love the premise of the Constitution and individualism and freedom, and we're just going to perfect it. That's different. Critical theory is specifically a teardown philosophy. So let's imagine if we have a, you know, like a 55-story building on a foundation. It's like, this is a good building. I like the foundation, but I want some say on how it's going to con continue to build. Critical theory is not interested in the building at all. They're trying to tear it down. So they're trying to, like, they're they're trying to shit on every floor. They're saying, oh, the, the structure's fucked up. This is this. This is this. And then slowly just start removing panels and pieces of steel and whatever until there's no more building. It's it's not, it's not a blueprint. It's not telling you how to build society. It's only interested in dissolving it. Um, civil rights would be, it's a good building. It just needs some work. Uh, we need to, we need to do this. I like the premise. So it's like, it, it, it's a continuation 
of Frederick Douglass, or it's a continuation of Booker T. Washington, where it said, I like the premise of the, the Constitution. It was, it was built in the image of ending slavery and prosperity for all. We just have to see that through. It's a, you know, as, as Frederick Douglass said about the Constitution after he realized what it actually was about, this in all, I forget what book it was, but all caps, this is a glorious liberty document, um, you know, that I love the premise, then you have to just continue it. So that's a build up philosophy. It's not a teardown philosophy. But when you have Marxism is specifically antithetical to civil, to, to, liber, to, to liberalism, you know, and, and freedom. So you have to destroy it. It's, it's not, you know, let me help you build this building. You know what I mean? So the, those things tend to latch on to legitimate criticisms that people that want the building to be better um, would also latch into. Uh, but then somehow they're able to, it's about injecting that solution, which is just, well, let's just tear it. Let's just tear this part down. Let's just get rid of it. Let's, yeah. let's, get, let's just get rid of that one. And then let's just get rid of that one. And there's, you know, so basically it's a think tank that's trying to figure out how to inject itself because overt. And, and so the, you get into, we just want Gramsci to the Frankfurt School, to Max Horkheimer, to Adorno. Um, and then in the 1960s, you get into Herbert Marcuse. Um, up until this point, Frankfurt School was, wasn't really much of anything. It was, it, was, it was in small circles in the university, but nobody was out there talking so much about, I mean, people knew about Adorno and, 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 and the Frankfurt School, but it just wasn't, it didn't have as much of a, a role. It was still creating this ideology. It was a think tank, basically. It was a think tank trying to figure out how do we insert ourselves and, and be successful within a society? Because there were attempts at just being, con there was a Communist Party USA. There was an open Communist Party USA. And it wasn't successful because people realized that people hate communists. Once anything, like for example, it started to finally come out about the evils of communism. Uh, and I sh obviously when people say communism, communism is the utopian end goal. So nothing's communist. Everything's socialist until the communist uh, utopia is realized. When they say that communist has never, communism has never been tried, it's been tried. It just can't be reached because it's an, it's an anti-scientific idea <laughs> that people would give up power, that people would continue to produce without slavery, that people would be fine removing all of their power and their self-interests. It, it's... It doesn't. That's the reason it doesn't work. It's because it's, it the the idea is a failure. It's a wrong. It's it's not what happens when you go through those steps. Um, so that's why you're never able to reach utopia because it doesn't fucking exist. Um, but when the evils of but we still say communism. Um, when the evils of communism came out, there's like a secret speech by Khrushchev, um, who who took on who took power after Stalin, um, and released the secret speech to several intelligence agencies and was basically acknowledging a lot of the death and murder and a lot of the evil that had taken place. So after that was finally had to be acknowledged, uh, very, it became very difficult to describe yourself as like human and a communist at the same time. Um, so the communist party was very much relegated to, to, you know, as if, as if I was Nazi party USA. And so yeah. if you're a Nazi party USA, it's like, that's not a good strategy for, uh, you know, injecting your beliefs anywhere. Cause nobody's <laughs> going to want to join Nazi party USA. Not at all. It's yeah. So you had this other branch of, uh, communist party USA, which was like kind of like the Saul Alinsky branch, this understanding of, 
okay, don't just come out, out and say, I'm a fucking communist. Come join me because everybody hates you. Um, but what if you injected yourself? What if you put on the suit and tie and, you know, participated in the system and uh, slowly, you know, go about it kind of a little more secretly and just injecting the criticisms and the ideas and stuff like that. Um, and so you get into to Herbert Marcusa. Herbert Marcusa is second generation Frankfurt School critical theorist. Uh, see the first wave, now we're getting to the second wave. And Marcusa is actually pretty famous. Marcusa is a rock star in the 60s. Um, takes off during like all the civil rights stuff and um, and the war, like the war effort, Vietnam. Um, oh, actually, I should have went back. Um, let me let me digress. I'll bring it right back to to uh, Marcusa. Okay. And so this is just in the brain of me. It's my I guess how I, I how I uh, make things easier to to understand. So there's decentralization. I already described that with John Locke and whatnot. And then there's centralization, collectivism, uh, and that's Nazism and that's um, Marxism. Um, but there's top down forms of it, and there's bottom up forms of it. So basically, the same end goal for different reasons and by organizing different power structures. So Marxism would be an example of a bottom-up form of centralization and collectivism, because that's the whole point, an uprising of the proletariat. But there are other, that, that's not the definition of socialism. Socialism was a concept before that. That just means collective ownership of property and land and, and businesses and stuff. And so young, Hegelian, uh, young Hegelians also made up the Fabian Society. Have you heard of the Fabian Society? I don't think so. So the Fabian Society was created in 1884, and it was made up of um, a couple. It was it was in it was an English, uh, it was an English socialist group, and they were named after uh, Fabian, Fabius, Fabian. There's a general named Fabian, who uh, you know Hannibal from like uh, Carthage, yeah, yep. trying to destroy Rome. So he was finally defeated by Fabius who just realized that if you just move really fucking slow and not take this guy head on and just wear him out because he doesn't have like the resources, that just a slow, long kind of fight uh, would be successful in defeating um, in defeating Hannibal. And he won. Um, and so the Fabian Society uh, goal... Hold on, I have a little note on Fabian Society. I can find it. Sorry. The goal was socialism. The goal was to get rid of, um, of individual ownership. Um, here's a quote. Aim at the reorganization of society by emancipation of land and industrial capital from individual and class ownership uh, and the vesting of them in the community for the general benefit. Now, they didn't have a pleasant view of society. They are the sort of eugenics-based, kind of like what you see in the progressive era in the United States, uh, like the uh, Margaret Sanger, this idea of, of, you know, people that are unevolved. So, you know, you have the young Hegelians that kind of gives you that, oper that's the operating system. That's how things work is through dialectics. And then um, you have kind of like the Enlightenment, the liberals that kind of still like think that there's something to God and creating natural rights and stuff like that. But then there's the people that completely reject that said, no, we're the gods. And so Darwin kind of gives people that ability to say, see, God didn't make anything. We came from 
apes to this, to this, to this, to this. And that was very influential on eugenics and the progressive era and white supremacists at the time, because that's where you get like this idea of racial superiority. Um, you know, the, uh, there were social sciences immediately attached to, to Darwin and like that idea, you know, that chart where like the, the ape and then I kind of worked their way up to like, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Darwin was very much against that because he, he didn't want to stress that it, it doesn't mean better. It just means that this is how, this is how species adapt. It's not just some linear, some linear thing where it just is a continuous evolution. So the social Darwinists, your progressives latch onto this idea that that keeps going, that you can create this enlightened, perfect man that has these attributes. If we can just be the right people in charge and can mold the clay, we can continue on to make this perfect man. That's what eugenics is. It's I'm going to form, I'm going to take the best cell, best whoever, merge them together, and I'm going to encourage other people to die or not procreate. Like that's what the basic eugenic principle is. And so they, it's very much in kind of white supremacist circles, this idea that like when they first brought that out, when I was first coming out, that was a racial propaganda where the skin was lightening over, over the evolution chart. And, you know, you have figures like Woodrow Wilson, who, you know, is, is in these circles of these kind of social Darwinists. Um, he writes history books in Princeton, it's like 1880s, 1890s. Um, he writes history books that are basically um, uh, confirming this idea of evolution being like a racial thing, this idea that Africans should just kind of be sent back to Africa and just, you know, let's just put them, you know, put them back and then evolution can kind of carry on in the United States. And so Woodrow Wilson, that's what, so when people say progressive in, in the American terms, that's what the progressive era is. The progressive era begins in 1913. The progressive era is this idea that the government shouldn't just be about being a referee on the sidelines that protected your rights. The progressive era was this idea like, no, we can use the tools of the government to better society, to create a engineered society, to evolve man. So then it became, we're not just going to be a referee. We're going to have income tax. We're going to give and receive. We're going to influence behavior. We're going to educate. And so he, um, at, at Princeton, writes these history books. It kind of becomes the history books for how we teach history in, in the United States at that time. Um, it very much relegated the role of black Americans, like during the American revolution, there's a lot more role of American uh, blacks at the time of the revolution. And that just kind of gets eroded from uh, kind of just leaves the history books. Um, his history books actually inspired birth of a nation. So that was a wow. KKK, um, propaganda piece. Yeah. Birth of birth of a nation. And then that was aired in his white house. It's the first film to ever be shown in the White House was under Woodrow that. Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, they, they credit Woodrow Wilson as being the basis for their ideology. And so this idea of progressivism, eugenics, and social Darwinism are all kind of intermixed. And young Hegelianism, that comes from the same ideology. Um, and so going to... Okay, so sorry. 1884. 1884, um, Fabian Society. So that same kind of circle of, of intellectuals, that same ideology um, in 1884 creates the Fabian Society. And it's, again, it's the same view of society, that there's a bunch of useless eaters, that poor people, poor people shouldn't own a house or exchange stuff, or they shouldn't really have a say in anything. And so they envisioned this world in which there were these great intelligent leaders, 
and then would oversee who should live, who should die, who should be able to do whatever. We'll make the rules, but we can't just snap our fingers and get there. So we have to slowly erode society. They didn't, they didn't see the, they, they had the same end goal as Karl Marx, but they didn't, they didn't want to go the same way. They, they thought you didn't have to go through bloody revolution and fighting people. It just got dirty. It was unpredictable. You didn't need to do that. All you had to do was negotiate slowly, find people who were um, pragmatic, and slowly, over time, work your ideology into the system. And that's more of the American, Western European form of socialism that's taking place. Like when they say that Sweden, for example, is like socialist, I mean, it's not, it's kind of in between. Um, but the reason it got there wasn't from the Swedish social revolution. It was slowly over time. And the same thing in the United States. It was sl- there wasn't an American Marxist revolution. It was just slowly, all of a sudden you had the progressive era where the Federal Reserve comes in and then the income yeah. tax comes in and yeah. then you have... You know, now we're going to get the EU and NATO, and it's just these little incremental steps that build centralization. And so they have the founding members: George George Bernard Shaw, Sidney Webb, Graham Wallace, Sidney Oliver. The Fabian Society is not just some little thing I'm I'm like talking about. That's like okay, that's a blip. They don't do anything. Um, they are the oldest think tank still in existence in Britain. They are intertwined with the Labour Party. Tony Blair, who was prime minister, was intertwined with, with the uh, with the Fabian Society. Still giving, still gives speeches there. Um, the this is interesting. You're gonna love this. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you so you know H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, and uh, George Orwell? I love all of them actually. British playwrights that seem to be very predictive with all of their warnings about the future. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yep. Do you know why 1984 was called 1984? Why is that? It was a 100-year prediction on what the world would look like after the Fabian Society took place in 1884. Really? He was, yeah, because George Bernard Shaw was also a playwright. So they very much introduced, like they were in the same circles as H.G. Wells and Aldous Huxley. Huh. And so they saw the, dis, like the, the, the disdain that this group had for society as well as how much power they had and how successful they were going to be. And all they did was extrapolate and say, all right, if this continues at this rate, this is what the world's going to look like. And so that's all it is. So for example, in George Orwell's 1984, the the party is called INGSOC, right? I-N-G-S-O-C, English Socialists. That's what they're referring to, the Fabian Society. And so it's kind of a couple of hints. English Socialists, and 1984 being a 100 year prediction on 1884. Um, and so, yeah, the, they created the London School of Economics. Um, the London School of Economics has shepherded in so many world leaders all over the place. Um, it could be an Af- like African world leaders, whatever, whatever. It's this idea that you just put this ideology in these people and then instill them in positions of power throughout the world. Um, you know who else was also a graduate of the London School of Economics, the Fabian Societies? Um, uh, college, George Soros. No way. Yeah, George Soros is a, is a graduate of the London School of Economics. And so if you want to know who's like, a, that's a top-down source who's interested in collectivization and centralization, that's the, that's the end goal. Read the early works of, of, um, of Fabian Society. You'll scare the shit out of you. Okay. And their, their original logos was a wolf in sheep's clothing and a turtle that said, uh, when I strike, I'll strike hard basically. Um, and so they eventually got rid of the wolf in sheep's clothing because it was like, 
what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's like, you know, how how sinister can you be that your fucking logo is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and they were manipulating society. George Bernard Shaw was a was a supporter of Hitler. Um, you know, they were helping kind of usher in Europe to kind of look like what it does today with the European Union, just a central government. This idea that there's a smart class that should just oversee uh, people. There shouldn't be kind of people just doing their own thing. Like that's, that's ridiculous. Um, so that's one form of a top-down group. The other is very interesting. It comes from a professor named Carol Quigley, um, who is in high circles. I don't know if you've ever heard of Carol, Carol Quigley. Um, he was actually Bill Clinton's uh, professor at uh, Georgetown. Okay. And, uh, but he was talking about, there is this other similar British society, um, similar, similar ideology. Um, it was created from Sydney Rhodes. It's like, you know what a Rhodes scholarship is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's named after Sydney Rhodes, um, who was like a British business person who he's the reason why like South Africa and, and Rhodesia and Zimbabwe, um, were like filled with British people, um, was they were colonizing colonizing South Africa and, 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 uh, like had created Rhodesia, Rhodesia named after Rhodes, Sydney Rhodes. Um, and so he's, or like a rich, I think he was in, oh, so he was him and a partner, uh, were in diamonds and gold. So he's De Beers money. If you want to know why, uh, you know, the diamond industry was, was like, you know, had a monopoly and where that money went to, that was, that was Sydney Rhodes. And then he okay. creates this, creates the road scholarship um to kind of you know encourage people through his interests to you know to to look for people that are highly educated but then to grant them the kind of centralized worldview that comes with it yeah and so he he dies and then he's got seven secret wills and then it's overseen by lord milner and like a couple other like major figures and so the, the group is called several things, like the Roundtable Group, uh, the Milner Group. Basically, it helped fund a massive secret society that would oversee uh, British imperialism throughout the country. And not by creating the British Empire, but simply by imposing its will uh, subtly um, through the creation of like a world of a League of Nations or a, a UN or something like that. And, uh, and so. They are kind of the beginning of like you, the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. They yeah. have something very similar, like the Royal Foreign Relations in Britain. So they began that as well as the Council of Foreign Relations in the United States. And the idea was that you just you kept a tie between all the people in power, um, and then they kind of worked into your image because. The, the the basic idea is you run the world from like this kind of inner ring, this like the secret group that makes policy decisions, that makes war more predictable, um, banking control. Um, but then you don't do it by like unpredictable leaders. So you kind of control these democracies where it's like, okay, both president, you know, are like, if you ever look back and see like, okay, why were the last nine presidents part of the CFR? It's like, okay, there's a kind of this ruling group and then you just put forth this fake view that, you know, people are, are ruling things. And so that's why if you look out, they, they are like kind of the, like they're the godfather of the Bilderberg, the 
the CFR and the Trilateral Commission. And if you look at a chart that that includes every single like media figure, anybody that's prominent, they belong to one of those three groups. And it's not like if if you go to the, if you go to the CFR, you don't know like we're the secret society of the world. That's just the tie that makes you kind of to make sure you have that centralized centralized collectivist ends, and then you get to be kind of in power consistently. So if you ever wonder like a Barbara Walters will be fucking prominent for 70 years, it's because she's been initiated. She's not a threat and she's a part of the CFR. If you ever wondered why, you know, uh, any president, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, whoever, it's because, you know, Bill Clinton's a Rhodes scholar and he's fucking CFR and they make sure that he'll play the game and, and, and whatnot. Um, So that's another kind of centralized force um, that it really reached like the Milner group is what reshaped, they had a plan for what Europe was going to look like. They envisioned a three-tier. They they envisioned a three-power world, mm-hmm. and then to then got rid of Nazis. So they, they envisioned one in which you'd have the Soviets, the Nazis, and kind of like the American and the English together, and then you know controlled removal of the Nazis, and then just left a landscape in which it was just communists and you know the the British American imperialists, and that's why everything you just you you they removed all of these other threats because you had like the Turkish, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire. You had these other groups that weren't, you know, working in the interests of the Milner Group or whoever. So then they were able to reshape the world to just be less decentralized, to be less fractured, and then to, to you know, create one that was more easy to control, easy to, to kind of manipulate, impo- manipulate and, and, and impose their will. And so after Rhodes died, Rhodes at least didn't have such a sinister view. But after he died, the the money and his little secret groups that the that the wills created uh, were very much commandeered by like the Rockefellers um, and the other kind of main main figures that that you think of when you think of who are the families that kind of run things. That's the manner that they ran things. They commandeered the secret, those secret societies that were created, and then use it more for less for expanding British influence and more for just creating, uh, you know, more or less a new world order, uh, a UN, a, you know, League of Nations, which they attempted under Woodrow Wilson, but just didn't, didn't take off and they needed, you know, war to kind of restructure uh, what everything would, would look like afterwards. Um, so that going forward, I kind of start to understand things in terms of like centralization collectivism is the end game. And there are two forces fighting for it. The Avian Society, the Milner Group, and then you have like Marx or you have, you know, the critical theorists or the Frankfurt School are very much interested in how do you organize the bottom up. And then you get into figures that seem to be like, like seeing how those forces interact. So like China or Russia, I consider like a top down force of centralization. Like I said, Marxism, a, a bottom up force. But then when you take a uh, going back to Herbert Marcusa, Herbert Marcusa, wild rock star of the left. Um, of the new left is what they called it. And uh, he creates uh, repressive tolerance. Are you familiar with repressive tolerance? No, talk to me about it. So repressive tolerance. Now, this is this is kind of simplified. This is actually by, uh, I think, James Lindsay. Um, but if you read it, it's the exact same thing. So it's, if, if you read it, it, it is what this is. This is just breaking it down uh, more simplified. So the 12 okay. points of 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance. I encourage you to read it. It's not too long. 
by philosopher and social sociologist Herbert Marcuse. Uh, he was a teacher and mentor of Angela Davis, who was one of the founders of the modern anti-racism movement. Um, one, basically, that only we, the left, can define the word tolerance. Um, Right-wing ideas and movements must be stopped with violence. Left-wing ideas and movements must be tolerated even with violence. So his is a, a dialectic supplied to the word tolerance, um, a synthesis between that that uh, they should always be tolerated and any uh, anything that that is against um, them is intolerance. So basically, reactionaries. It, it's it, it's important to keep in mind that people who are for like communism or socialism or ideal democracy tend to divide themselves into two groups, uh, them and fascists. That's it. There's not, there's not fascists, liberals, and communists. It's you're either for the revolution or you're against it. There's no, there's no other option. Um, you know, like the, so just a, a quick tidbit on the anti-fascists, the, the Antifa mm -hmm. uh, was named after the German party, a German communist party. It was called like Antifa, Antifascio, whatever the fuck it means in German. Antifascio, whatever the fuck. Um, same flag, same group structure, same ideology, um, same like logo and shit. Um, similar tactics. And they become the Stasi in East Germany. So yeah. that, that block becomes the East German uh, Stasi, the secret police. And then the what we call the Berlin Wall like the wall that separates the the free world from uh, from the Soviets. Yep. It had an had an actual word. It was called the anti-fascist barrier. That's what it was actually called back back then by the, the by the same political bloc. Which uh, I thought it was just an interesting interesting tidbit. Yeah, man. Huh. Um cool. yeah, that's from uh it's actually from Andy Noe's Andy Noe's book. Um that the uh, the Asian guy that got his head beaten in with a chain uh, in Seattle. Um yeah. So anyway, repressive tolerance is very much like this uh, guiding force to how things should be be realized going forward, which is why you can have like, we need free speech and end speech at the same time. So three, tolerance should only be extended to, to truth. Number four, only left, leftism is true and anything other than leftism is not. Number five, therefore tolerance is only to be extended to leftism. Number six, anyone who disagrees with this uh, must have been indoctrinated. To the extent that the majority of people disagree, that must mean the majority of people are indoctrinated. Uh, seven, since most people are indoctrinated, leftists must break the indoctrination so that they can finally grasp the truth of leftism and be on the right side of history. Number eight, to break the indoctrination, leftists must, provide, uh, must promote left-wing thought and suppress right-wing thought by taking over institutions, news media, childhood education, colleges, academia, film, government, business, nonprofits, et cetera. The ends justify the means. Number nine, promoting left-wing thought is accomplished by changing established universes of meaning and actively presenting information slanted in the opposite direction. Uh, number 10, suppressing right-wing thought is accomplished by withdrawing the freedom of speech, press, and assembly for anyone who disagrees with leftists on race, gender, religion, public services, police, social security, healthcare, hiring policy, technology, et cetera. 11, if necessary, to withdraw these freedoms, leftists must operate at such scale that their actions cease to be nonviolent and become revolutionary violence. Number 12, leftists who use revolutionary violence are not to be condemned by any leftists. They should always be excused by citing the truth and history promoted by leftists. And so he kind of puts together a playbook, which I think sounds very, I think over time seems more meaningful and, 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 and seems to make a lot of sense. But I highly encourage reading of Repressive Tolerance by, uh, by Herbert Marcuse, because like I said, he's highly influential on the new left 
and the civil and and the the black liberationists that occur after him. So like Angela Davis and the Black Panther Party and you know those those groups um they have the same ends. If you look up any of them, they're all Marxists. They are they're self-described communists or Marxists. Um whereas we so so now it's the same dichotomy. We tend to think of there's either racism or anti-racism or there's you're either for advancing black prosperity or you're against. But there's no place for like a Thomas Sowell or a Walter Williams view. And so I would make the case that no no no, you can either be racist or not racist, but there are more than one way to advance black people. So for example, there's the route of decentralization and individualism that advance black people, the Judeo-Christian values, the nuclear family, having a strong father in the figure and taking advantage of capitalism. So if like the Booker T. Washington way, the Frederick Douglass way, the uh, Black Wall Street way, this idea that you can take advantage of the rules of society and succeed at an individual level. Uh, but then there's like the, the W.E.B. Du Bois way, um, this idea that you just need to overthrow society, that you need to just chuck it. You got to chuck capitalism. You got to chuck Western liberalism because they were created by uh, by white men, even though so was Marxism and communism. Um, <laughs> so essentially, those views are being imposed on and kind of indoctrinated on um, kind of leading black figures. And so Herbert Marcuse was highly influential on uh, Angela Davis, uh, Angela Davis of openly common Communist Party USA, SDS, Weather Underground. Um, she actually met Marcusa at a at a Cuban Missile ri- uh, Crisis rally, um, and when asked about like uh, her relationship with Herbert Marcusa, because she then became his student, um, he was fucking her mentor. Um, in 2007, her direct quote was, he taught me that it was possible to be an academic, an activist, a scholar, and a revolutionary. Um, and so she, Marcuse's view was that academics needed to be a pipeline for revolutionaries and social activists. The problem with that is that it's an anthema. It's the opposite. Academia and politics aren't the same fucking thing. Because scholarship is about finding the truth, wanting to know, curiosity. Politics is you already know the truth, and you're just trying to solidify your answer. So if you're practicing politics in academia or in scholarship, then your conclusion's first, and then you're not going to do any kind of rigorous scholarship. You're just going to justify your own political ends. And so this merge, this this is when you start getting the in the ideas of of like I said, social activism and academia, this is the beginning of the grievance studies. This is the beginning of academic, like uh, women's studies in college or African-American studies in college. Um, these were polit- political in nature that then, then became like study groups. And their framework is what I, what I previously described, critical theory. Critical theory is the framework. It comes from Herbert Marcuse. He's introducing these concepts. So basically... The, you know, here's the premise. Uh, Hegelian, um, Hegelian dialectics is the operating system. Marxism and then Gramscianism applied to culture. And then um, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. These form the foundation for this, I- this new ideology of Herbert Marcuse and Angela Davis. And then that becomes, you know, added on. Like, so now you're getting to like the eighth floor. And now you're getting on to like Derek Bell 
and Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who merge. So Derek Bell, um, he's highly influenced by Angela Davis. Angela Davis was a fucking rock star, by the way. <laughs> uh, she was traveling the world. She was going to Russia. She was going to China. She was going to Czech, Czech Republic. She yeah. was actually, a, she was attacked by Solzhenitsyn because she was in the Czech Republic and there were a lot of prisoners and, and obviously he was a prisoner. So he was empathetic. Uh, and he was like, Hey, why aren't you speaking up for the socialist prisoners in the Czech Republic that they're, you know, that they're miserable and could really have used somebody like you and your status to say, Hey, what about these fucking prisoners in the Czech Republic? And, uh, she basically said, fuck you to Solzhenitsyn and said, uh, her direct quote was they deserve what they get. Let them remain in prison. Um, Damn. that's a direct quote by Angela Davis. <laughs> so yeah, she didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's, she was sponsored by East Germany. Um, you know, so you start to see this Soviets. Okay. Remember the Yuri Bezmenov video talking yeah. about how disinformation actually works. Yep. It's not spying campaigns. All we do is amplify voices that tear at that the the society in the United States, that's what they did. They would find an Angela Davis or they'd find the Black Panthers and then they would give them money and they would support their causes and they would amplify their voices or they would, you know, do like disinformation campaigns. So for example, um, the idea behind disinformation is that it's a lie based on a nugget of truth, but it comes from a, a, a an actual source. Like, so for example, if the and this comes from Ion Pachepa, this is a name to look up. Ion Pachepa um, was the the highest level Soviet to to leave the Soviet Union. He was a remote Romanian um, security general or something like that. And so he talked a lot about how disinformation campaigns work and what they're actually interested in. And one example he gave was, uh, you know, if if one were to say that American Americans in Vietnam were torturing citizens and acting like Genghis Khan, um, people would know that it was bullshit because it's like, okay, that's, 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 a, that's Pravda that said that. It's, that's Soviet Union that said that. Who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. But if John Kerry, a soldier, were to say the same thing, then all of a sudden it gets a little bit more, hmm, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, and that, that's, stuff like that happened all the time because they realized after the Korean War that, okay, the United States is richer and they have a better military. So that, it was a proxy war. It was communism versus the, you know, the free world, essentially, was the, was, the, was the Korean War. And as a result, we liberated South Korea, and South Korea doesn't have to live the fate of North Korea. That's, that's what happened because of the Korean War. The exact same thing was happening in Vietnam, but the Soviets were smart enough to realize that they couldn't fight the same war and win. So then they had to engage in disinformation campaigns, and they had to infiltrate the kind of American political scene. And so anybody who was, like, sowing discontent and being allowed on campus and saying that it's about American imperialism, they would amplify those voices. Whether there was valid or not, that's just what took place. That's how they felt that they needed to win. They couldn't win on the battlefield, so they had to win in the American media and in American colleges and increase that pressure so much that there was a fracture that would happen in the United States. And I think they were right, and I think they were successful, and that's, that is how uh, they were successful, by encouraging the left to... Uh, reject the, the idea that we were liberating from communism. Um, and uh, of course, you know, it falls through after, after uh, we were, we were going to win. And then the shit with uh, Nixon happens. And then the left takes over and says, Hey, don't worry. I know we just kind of signed like a peace contract to end the war, but we're not going to follow through on it. So continue to just fucking be communists. And so they rejected it. The war was lost. We withdrew. 
And then after that, 4 million Viet, uh, Vietnamese were fucking slaughtered. And nobody gave a shit that was like talking about lives and people, whatever the fuck. Once the communists took over, 4 million men, women, and children fucking slaughtered. And nobody gave a fuck. That's and, crazy, uh, dude. Yeah. It's fucking scary. It's, it's insane. Um, but that's how they knew how to win. So this idea that you amplify voices that were against your cause. They did the same thing with the Black Panthers. Huey, New uh, Huey Newton was a Marxist. Um, he's one of the co-founders. He was influenced by Marx, Lenin, Malcolm X, Mao Zedong, and Che Guevara. Uh, and when he'd go to China, they'd all wave their little red books at him and said, hey, us, we're also against the American imperialists. We stand with you, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And so, um, oh, Gramsci. So getting back to Gramsci and the idea that you needed to have you couldn't just have a political revolution because this idea of culture was so embedded in society. So you had to overthrow that, then have the political revolution. That was very influential on Mao Zedong. And so Mao Zedong was different from, from the Soviets. They actually had a cultural revolution. They had a very similar cultural revolution to what's taking place in the United States. In the US, this idea yeah. of throwing overthrowing statues and taking place in the colleges. They even used the same concepts. So like uh, Han is the predominant race in China. Han fragility, Han privilege, Han superiority was used in the exact same way that it's being used today to kind of overthrow and challenge the, the structures of society. And then they would just, they, their whole thing was re, re, remove the four olds. So it was like old culture, old ideas, old this and old that. And they would just destroy, like I said, statues and art and museums and fucking, you know, this, this old way of doing things in favor of a Marxist revolution. And so that eroded the culture, the, the critical, uh, the cultural revolution, I think ended like 10 million dead. Like it was, it was brutal. People bringing people out in the streets and just killing them, shaving yeah. off their heads. And um, it was bad. And then, so after the culture was eroded, then it led the way for the political revolution to come into play. So we've, we're kind of going through a cultural revolution. It'd be interesting to see what political revolution looks like. And so they could then come in with Mao Zedong. He takes power. He's ushed. Now he's practicing Leninism after using Gramsci's idea. Now he takes power. And then after he takes power, he does all the measures that Marx suggests. And then 60 million people die from starvation because that's what happens when you take people's farmland away. They don't produce and then people starve. Um, and so, and then eventually they learned to, they, they, they learned from the Nazis that it's not, ownership of the means of production, it's control over the means of production. And then they began practicing state-sponsored uh, capitalism. And uh, it's done quite well for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, and so, like, Angela Davis, like I said, is, is dealing with these bottom-up forces and top-down forces, the same with the Black Panthers, these bottom-up forces that are kind of like, introducing them these concepts to these readings these ideas and then these top-down forces that are kind of like amplifying them um it's interesting to note that anybody who's not playing that game beside this marxist black liberationist game um of, of essentially the same thing that marx wanted a utopia except with 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 black people um usually die usually <laughs> usually they die so like martin luther king was very much a, a liberal. He's a he's a more of a classical liberal that gave legitimacy to the civil rights movement. But he was a uniter. He wasn't somebody that was saying, "Tear down the Constitution, burn it down." Uh, you know, uh, anti civil rights. No, he's very much for civil rights. He's saying, "I like the foundation. I like the building. I like the structure." But we got to get to this point. And so, he's very in line with civil rights. 
once he's kind of useless and trying to bring people together, he's a target for murder. Same with Malcolm X. Malcolm X, uh, Nation of Islam, uh, fucking, you know, you know, spewed racist and hatred and, and basically he was, said, he was a radical. Yeah. And then he went to Mecca and he realized that white people weren't so bad because there were white Muslims and there were people of all kinds of races and different groups. And he went, he went around the world and he became unradical. Uh, and he left Islam and he tried to get Muhammad Ali to leave the nation of Islam because he realized that first of all, the nation of Islam doesn't know shit about Islam. And second, second <laughs> of all, it was just, it was, it was hate spewing and, 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 and didn't have the probably even the right view of what even Africa looked like. And um, so he, he changed and then he gets murdered. He's, he yeah. becomes less divisive. He becomes a force that's. He rejected the civil rights. He thought um, Martin Luther King was an idiot that was just playing into white people's hands because he had that very much this. But eventually, became kind of came the critical theory or critical race theory view um, was that civil rights were just a tool of of, of white uh, white people that you're just playing into their game, which again is funny because they're all Marxists and Marxists was a fucking white European male. Um, (laughs) and so yeah later on he he's not and then he's killed by the nation of islam i probably by louis farrakhan not that he he killed him man but louis farrakhan had him killed i can almost guarantee you gangster and he's been yeah like like you said you know people who've been able to uh command power for a long time they're either initiated or you know something's going on like that motherfucker has been around for a long time saying Mm -hmm. some crazy shit without any repercussions you know what i mean yep because it's divisive the moment <laughs> yeah. louis farrakhan was like you know what um constitution is pretty nice i think we can make society better and we can move in the direction if we just kind of you know supported uh the idea of the family and bang, he'd, just be, yeah, he'd yeah. be he'd be gone in two seconds um like low so key, i'm like nervous about my podcast man like <laughs> on the real like talking to people and shit like i don't i'm no farrakhan or mlk but i'm like I don't know, man, the wrong person is the wrong thing. And fuck, you know, some package shows up at your house or, you know, you're eating food at a restaurant one day and you're not feeling good. Because <laughs> it goes against the goals of people that are very interested in this, very invested in this, you know, that are like, no, we need this as a, a pressure point to kind of dissolve society. That It's perfect because it's there's a point of contention. There's valid um, injustice and and things that you can take advantage of. The problem is, People are using it for their own self-interest. Like Marxists and these groups are using it to satisfy their own needs, their own desires, and just using that as nothing more of the plight to reach their ends. It's the means for their ends. It's not the end. They're not trying to satisfy uh, the ends of the black community because honestly, to satisfy the ends of the black community would be antithetical to Marxism. It would be to embrace capitalism, to embrace just saying, fuck you to the government educational system and like educating on your own terms and strong families, strong moral values and using the game to, to, to be successful. And there's a history of that. There's a history of, of black communities saying we're going to form a, a mutual aid society or fraternal lodge yeah. in our interest. And then all of a sudden they have a gas station and a hotel and like the owners like fucking own it. They're starting education, whether it be black, you know, black wall street. And then, you know, even after black wall street got destroyed, it didn't go away. The next year it came back, they built it. They built it the next fucking year, came back stronger than ever. It existed for decades until welfare policy and government policy eventually eroded it so that it didn't exist anymore. Um, so, I mean, getting it, and this is, and it's important to know kind of all these figures. Um, 
So Ang- Angela Davis, very like a fucking like like Herba Marquisa, a fucking rock star. Um, she's highly influential on Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell, um, who they are credited with with establishing um, critical race theory. And so he's Harvard Law, uh, in like nineteen seventies or something like that. They began at Harvard, um, essentially applying conflict theory, critical theory to social and cultural features. Um, it originally, it originally was about examining through the same kind of critical theory lens, uh, laws, society, foundations, um, and, and Derek Bell kind of felt that they maintain racism. Um, he was very much like a, a in the image of W. B. Du Bois. Uh, instead of like, there's a big debate in the black community between Dubois and Booker T. Washington. So he's very much in the uh, Webb Dubois camp. Um, very cynical. This idea that you just have to overthrow, like you can't exist in this society, basically. Uh, you can't make it work for you. Um, so the goal was just to make racism more visible and critical. Um, uh, that the idea that capitalism is a white phenomenon that exploits black men. Um, race is socially constructed to justify colonialism, which is semi-true. Um, basically, the idea was uh, during the Enlightenment, they're starting to have this self-reflection. Um, you're kind of getting out of barbarism. Um, while all societies engaged in barbarism and slavery, um, there was like this need to like to make it not so like seem so wrong. And so then you have you start to get into like this justification of like well there's different classes of race, uh, so that's like the nugget of truth. But then that's used to just make these leaps to say well then therefore everything that came about after, for example, capitalism or liberalism or um, the Constitution or the United States is all built on that idea of of race and difference, and then therefore it's built in the image of white supremacists as opposed to. Uh, society that was that was um, self-reflecting and becoming more advanced, and then eventually getting to the point that the you know the West actually realizes that slavery is wrong, and it's the first place that that recognized that. Um, yeah. William Wil- William Wilberforce, that kind of uh, evangelical movement in Britain that eventually gained influence over the American founders, um, where they're like, okay, individual individualism, truth, liberty, whatever the fuck, like this needs to be for everybody. Uh, and we need to end slavery. And, and the United States North was the first place in the world to get rid of slavery. Natives still had it. South America still had it. Africa still had it. Middle East still had it. Um, it's always interesting that like Muslim, uh, uh, there's like some black rejection of like uh, the Western, like Christianity and, and um, Judaism, but sometimes in favor of Islam as if Islam is like um, didn't have a history with Africans. They have a horrible history with Africans. If you look up the slave trade from from like the Middle East and the, and the Muslim slave traders, yeah. um, they brought in like 40 million slaves um, through the desert, and they'd cut their like they'd uh, certainly uh, they'd castrate them, and they'd castrate them, and then they'd have to go through the desert, and half of them would die because they weren't like they weren't any good at it. Yeah, like it was fucking fucking miserable. But if you just if you don't know shit like that, then you just like oh, okay, well maybe I'll practice Islam because that's you know, uh, not saying there's anything. There's fine sectors of Islam, but like the, to getting to getting into radical Islam, like the nation of Islam, I could see how that could just be a trap for for people to say like, well, I'm rejecting 
this, but it's like, that's not, that's not a good history either. Um, and then, and that's why, um, uh, Malcolm X became like a Sunni, a Sunni Muslim. Um, so kind of like a less radical version. Um, but with critical theory or critical race theory, um, it combines, are you familiar with postmodernism? Yeah. We've talked about that a bit. Like, uh, Herbert Marcuse, uh, um, what's the other guy's name? Uh, God damn it. Jack, uh, Jacques Derrida. So it's like a French, it's like a French, you're kind of, like, kind of Hegelian Marxist in, in their end game, but it probably wasn't as influential in their, uh, philosophy. Um, uh, theirs was more about objective truth and subjective truth. And so basically this idea that, uh, all forms of science or objectivity or language, um, is purely motivated by bias and power structure. And so people in charge of science or people in charge of structure are going to build it in a way that, that, um, favors themselves. And so some of it was, I don't think a fair crit criticism or an, it was an oversimplification, um, uh, because the scientific method, the whole point was to avoid that. It was the, the point was to say that the previous, you know, the church and whatnot, uh, we're very much protecting power structures, but the scientific method, this idea that we're just going to ask questions to the world and then people are going to put forth answers. And then we're just going to tear all the answers to shit until something is like deals with all the tearing down. And then we recognize to say like, okay, this, this, you know, um, Einstein knew his shit. Like he, he put forth an answer that, you know, was a, was a problem. He wasn't a part of any kind of power structure. He was a poor piece of shit. Um, yeah. and yeah. then, his ideas are examined. We, we go forward and then, wow, it's theory. It's thing. It's a thing. That's how science, that's how science works. Just to, so to say that, no, that's just people putting forth their own bias and it means nothing. It's not objective science. Um, you know, I, I, I think just leads to nihilism. And so like postmodernism for the, for the longest time, wasn't really respected. Um, it was just kind of this, you know, often the universities over here, it was influential in like gender theory and social sciences and stuff like that. But even those weren't really well respected because it wasn't rigorous scholarship. It was just, um, social activists attempting to practice scholarship. Um, I think what happens is, I mean, it's, it's really when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, um, while I think that criticism of um, our structures and, and things like that are warranted uh, over time because I think that it's the only way to improve. You know, I think it's it, it takes uh, objective evaluation of your current situation in order to move forward in a better place and design a better future. Um, I think it's more through the lens of you know, somewhere in the middle where you're talking about civil rights that I find myself. Where it's like, you know, I don't think the U.S. is all bad. You know, it's not, it's, you know, everything's not all bad. Everything's not all um, shitty. And I don't know. I, I find myself also feeling like it's history that binds us. Um, I, I think sometimes we get so caught up in why something started and why it happened and who it came from that we uh, don't actually evaluate what it is. You know, we don't actually sit down and look at the idea and say, hey, does this have merit? Okay, so what? It came from some white dude from the 1700s. So what? It came from some, I don't know, crazy, weird Middle Eastern dude in, I don't know, the 80s. 
what's the idea? Does it have merit? If it does, you know, let's consider it and evaluate it, talk about it. If not, you know, after this evaluation process, let's move on to the next thing. But yeah, yeah that's kind of Absolutely. where I am. Absolutely. But, uh, I do, I do have to get going, man. Uh, my bad. I don't want to, you know, stop us from rolling. But uh, no me and Kelsey, you're going to have to head out around four-ish, I think, because she's coming back from friends right now. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. We can, uh, we can continue because there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, dude. And uh, just with critical theory, like critical race theory, I completely agree with you. And uh, looking at like, okay, what did Derek Bell and Angela Davis actually write? What did they actually put forth? What is the lens? What are the central tenets? There are how many people know that there's five central tenets of critical of critical race theory and what they actually mean. What what are the premises that 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 they go off of? And I think the only reason why it's important to look at what the what came before it is to say is because it's taking a premise and running with it. So if I'm looking at a building and I'm looking at a 30-story building and saying, okay, I'm looking at the 30th store, the 30th story, but it's built on this, 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 this. Meaning if I pluck one of those things away, I you lose some of the, the foundation. You lose some of the premises that, they, that they're built upon. So if I reject the foundation, no, the foundation is shit. The first floor is shit. Every floor below it is shit. And therefore the idea itself is shit. For example, uh, an, an easy one would be to judge society on the basis of equal outcomes is absolute shit or to, uh, to come up with this idea that, um, I guess, I guess here's a, here, here would be an interesting one. Um, which one applies to you? Um, since critical race theory is, you know, it's, 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 it's black, you know, it's about the black experience. Um, I am, which, which statement would be more accurate? I am, I am Ryan and I also have to happen to be black or I am black and also I'm Ryan. I'm Ryan. I also happen to be black. Yeah. So Kimberly Crenshaw makes a point to say it should be the opposite. That it's I am black, capital B. You are your collective identity preeminently before your, your individual. You, right, right, right then and there, it's this idea that you are the collective identity first and then the individual that's so um, weird yeah I, I, I can show you Cumberland Crenshaw's mapping yeah. the margins like we need to talk about faces at the bottom of the well by Derek Bell we need to talk about Kimberly Crenshaw's mapping the margins we need to talk about the Combahee River Collective basically the angry black lesbians that have invented um, identity politics this all these concepts come from something and then they're they're pursuing Gramsci's ideas of class consciousness critical consciousness of an underculture of, of cultural hege hegemony. And so when you remove this and this and this and this and this, then what are you left with? And there might, I think the only, the, the important thing to say is that the criticism launched are corrected are, are sub, uh, much of them are correct, but they're the same criticisms that other people are launching. What makes critical race theory distinct are the solutions put forth the lens that you look through um, and how you examine and what, you know, how that's carried out. And then what got attached to that? What got put on top of that? Whether it be Robin D'Angelo and Oslem Sensoy, and whether it be uh, Ibram Kendi, whether it be, you know, you know whoever you want to go to. Um, so I, th I think maybe on the next one we get into, we can really break into what it, not is it bad, not is it good, what is it? Let's, what is it? What, what is it actually? Is it? 
Yeah. yeah. What the Let's fuck is it? Define it, you know? Right. Yeah. So I, I at least wanted today to be so many people just say it's Marxist. What the fuck does that mean? Right. Yeah. I at least wanted to say, I'm explaining to you exactly what, how, why it's Marxist, and then how the ideas evolved. Like Marx was, you know, only good for one revolution. And then you have people in a lab that are trying to figure out how do we expand this? You know, Gramsci, fucking 20 years in prison to, you know, the Frankfurt School to, to, to you know, all these groups that were geniuses. I mean, these are think tanks that were really figuring out some complex understanding of how psychology works and how, how, to, how to flip people and radicalize people and how to, how to really get into the educational system and get into media and then have that be helped by, you know, Soviets and people that infiltrate, you know, at the same time that the Fabian socialists are infiltrating and essentially want the same end goal but just through different means and then how this all relates with one another. It's very important to shape all of that. So you, one can have a lens and say, one can have a map and say, this starts to make a lot more sense when I see this counteract this, and this versus this, and realize that most of us are, as you yourself are a liberal, a classical liberal, a somebody that just thinks of themselves as an individual, not a collective, not uh, you know, not in favor of centralization. We're in favor of decentralization. We're in favor of limiting power. Not that we should be ran by lords or feudalists or the Great Reset or Klaus Schwab or <laughs> or anybody. You know, nobody thinks that. And right. so it, it becomes very difficult to have an us versus them or a left versus right, whatever the fuck, when they're both forms of collectivism, when they're both forms of something that we don't like. And we're looking, going, how do I make sense of anything? Where are the things that represent my views? Where are there the things aren't that any. <laughs> there aren't any? And so maybe that's the first step is just to realize that and say, well, what would and how did how did this all manifest? How can this all become to make sense? And when you hear tidbits like the Fabian Society and why was George Orwell so correct and George Soros, what is his influence? And you know, what are these different forms of collectivization and centralization? What was the ideology of the progressive era? What does it mean to be a progressive? What does it mean to be the new left? What is a Marxist? What is a cultural Marxist? What is a neo-Marxist? Was Marx evil? What was Marx compared to Nazism? What was Marx compared to Leninism? And really understanding what all this means, I think is you know extremely helpful. And then the next thing is, well, then critical race theory. What is critical race theory? What is it? What, you know, what are the core tenets? What's in their books? What did they write down? What were their goals? What was the end goals? You know, what's valid? What's invalid? And then based, you know, what was built on top of that and yeah. how does that affect where we, where we're at today? It's just, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm very interested in exploring that and putting all those pieces together. Um, because I think uh, one thing that you do that I always admire is you're able to look at that macro view. You're able to zoom out and get out of, um, the weeds, if you will, and really see what's going on. And so. I like that, man. We, we definitely have to do that. And we definitely have to do that with people who think differently than us in order to get the full map. Like you said, you know? Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's fun. I mean, it's, 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 I love just looking through it and, you know, not coming into it like, this is bad. Why is this bad? Right. But just, uh, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? What, yeah. <laughs> you know, what even is it, bro? Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So good. yeah, I say we uh we we try to set up a time to continue, get Corey back in, and uh, so yeah, go from there. I'll let you close. It's your podcast. I'll let you close it out. Let's do it, brother. Hey, um, we'll just leave it at that, man. Let's just leave it as a cliffhanger. It's a part two. This isn't officially over, so we'll get it. We'll get it going, man. But uh, I enjoyed talking to you. Um, can't wait to see you. You know, you're down in Mexico, man. So it'll be cool when you come back here in a, about two weeks or so. And so we'll we'll definitely do it, bro. For sure. Yep. Well, hey, take it easy, my dude. All right, man. Talk see to you ya. soon. Later.